Team Female, welcome to the Female Political Strategy Podcast. Female first, female forward. I'm Ro. I'm Lilla. And I'm Elle. And today I would like to talk about a topic that's little known, little talked about, and it's very much so worth noting. It's being a minority in politics, or specifically race in politics. And I'm bringing this topic up to you today because in the news the other day, and A conservative news outlet by the name of Project Veritas, well known for um, profiling the controversial issue that was Planned Parenthood, where they went in and recorded Planned Parenthood staff talking about abortion in a very willy-nilly manner. And basically, they do expose-style reporting on things that are of conservative interest. And most recently, they covered aspiring congressman Alex Doval of Phoenix, Arizona, speaking candidly to a staffer about his views of the conservative party, specifically the Republican party, and how moderates and how his race plays into being a Republican. The Republican party is disgusting to me. The stuff that they're doing should be criminal and they should all be thrown in prison. Yes. The McCarthy's, the Cawthorns, the whole audit bullcrap thing that they're doing. I listen to what my counsel tells me. That's when they say, go get an endorsement from somebody. I say, all right, cool. No, I don't have respect for Candace Owens anymore. Will I take her donation and take her donors? Absolutely, but it goes no further than that. Yeah. I would never invite her to a Christmas party. Meet Alex Stovall, Arizona Republican candidate for U.S. Congress. An insider within his campaign brought us comments many of his voters and those in the Republican Party will find troubling. From America First messaging to issues of race, big business, tax incentives, and support for completing the border wall, Alex seemed to send mixed messages, saying one thing in private and selling his voters in the media on something entirely different in public. Yes. The McCarthy's, the Cawthorns, the whole audit bullcrap thing that they're doing, it's just another way for them to funnel money for the American people. You know how much money they've raised from this audit? Ten million dollars. So, what are your thoughts on the election? Then, do you think that Trump won? No. Do I think there was fraud? Yes. Okay. But not enough to overturn the election. But I'm not going to broadcast that everywhere. Yeah, I'm a Republican moderate. I vote policy. Yeah. I'm not part of the country club and the peanut gallery. I have no intent to be. Why hide his true feelings about the Republican Party? Well, it appears to be a balancing act strategy to maintain favor with mainstream Republicans while also appealing to more moderate voters. You don't win Arizona by being super right Republican. Yeah. Have you ever played uh, spades or yeah. goldfish? Uh-huh. You never show all your cards, right? Yeah. That's why I'm going to win and other people probably won't. I'm a conservative. Yeah. But I'm not going to beat on my big old monkey chest running around telling a whole bunch of people I am. First off, it's going to piss people off. It's going to turn people off, and no one's going to want to give you money. There are a lot of independents here. Independents are what determine the vote. They want to vote for me just so they can say that they elected the youngest black Republican in American history. Like, it doesn't matter what your policies are, they just care about that? Yep. That's everybody. Do you really think people care about policies? Oh yeah, you're getting a real newsflash about how politics work. Alex's ever-changing, flip-flopping, shape-shifting views aside, he admits to using his race as an element of his campaign, and that voters will elect him for it. Racism is real. What the news is telling you, what Tucker Carlson is telling you, what Ken Sowens is telling you, 
it's a bunch of baloney. We cannot allow black, Hispanic, or poor white communities to believe this radical agenda, this critical race theory nonsense that they're pushing. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell my children that because they're black, they have less of an opportunity or they're going to be shorthanded. In this clip, they're insinuating that Alex Stovall is actually a very uh, contradictory politician when it comes to representing himself as a Republican. So what they do is they juxtapose clips of him talking about CRT. And on the flip side, in this like candid recording, he's saying things like uh, absolutely racism exists. And CRT for everyone is critical race theory. Invariably, they are implying that he's contradicting himself by on one hand saying that he opposes CRT and on the other hand saying that racism exists. It's as if, though, the two can't coexist I will say, this is for the audience, I will say, when I read Elle's application to be co-host, I was like, how can you be Republican and Black? Like, that was my first thought. So, that should be our title. (laughs) How can you be Republican and Black? How is that possible? (laughs) So, yeah, please explain that to me, an ignorant white person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I did see one tweet. I can't remember who it was, but it was one of those, um, like, Black conservative thinkers. Well, he's basically talking about how like white liberals accuse him of being like tokenized or used by conservatives. And then he basically pointed out that um, when black people say things that leftists like, isn't it true that they're also being tokenized? Like they're only supporting you because you're a black person saying something that we agree with kind of thing. They both kind of do that. We can both talk about it from a broader angle, but also the specificity of what Alex Stovall says, because he says that the entire party discussed him. When he says the Republican Party discussed me, And then he goes after specific Black conservatives like Candace Owens for being grifters or denying racism even exists. So it's not clear to me. I don't know if this is like more clear to you. Like, is the perception that Alex Stovall is secretly a Democrat and he's just doing this as some kind of grift on the Republican Party? Or is he genuinely a Republican and uh, he's just being critical of the party of which he belongs? I think that's what he is doing. But Project Veritas is framing it. And it just goes to show that in politics, like at the end of the day, your race is all that matters if you're black both on the left and on the right. The right just is a little bit more overt about it because they have the pre-existing, like, you're racist culture to work with, whereas the left is a little bit more subtle and covert about it. What I think he's actually saying is there are racists and, like, people who deny that racism exists are just grifters that are trying to appease this, like, far-right community that doesn't want to believe that they're racist, but they actually are. But we can't pretend, like, the far-right and the bigotry and that obscene make America white again, people don't exist and don't align themselves with the conservative party, with the Republican party. Like, let's be real. And he goes on to say that I'm a moderate and you can't win by being a fart right winger. And a lot of their ideas are like absurd. And it is. And he even clarifies, like, did Trump win? No. Do, do I believe that there should be an audit and that fraud happened? Yes. But I don't know why I can't say one and like not the other. Like, why can't I believe that Trump lost? But I have to say what I need to say to get what I need to get in politics. And I think he's being unfairly targeted and maligned. And I suspect it's because he's a black Republican and he's held to a different standard. That's the difficulty with any type of involvement in either of these political parties is that they absolutely will cut the legs out from underneath you if you're a a quote-unquote non-traditional candidate that doesn't toe the party line. I think they do that with a lot of different type of politicians, not just minority candidates, but it's especially very clear that they do that to minority candidates. And on the left, I think there's just been an assumption that they get the black vote or they're going to get a large cohort of black vote to the point where they're dismissive, patronizing and insulting to a lot of 
black voters. Exactly. Exactly. Who don't vote the way that they want. But even if they vote the way that they want to, they care all the way up until they get the vote and then do absolutely none of the things that they promise for the black community. Yeah. In one of our Twitter spaces, someone brought up that the Democrats, they like to see themselves as the most progressive party. But when it comes down to it, they've never actually passed any progressive legislation. They always leave it up to the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade, um, Brown versus Board of Education and so on. And so, yeah, they're happy to use black people. Democrats think that they're entitled to have that as a guaranteed vote without having to actually do the work of benefiting that community. There is definitely a mic drop moment during the last campaign when Joe Biden did an interview with Charlemagne the God. He's a pretty he's a pretty popular uh, black radio host out of New York. He's like one of the three co-hosts of Breakfast Club. Uh, Charlemagne point blank asked him for some kind of tangible commitment to improving education prospects for black children, like asking him for some kind of platform for Joe Biden to get behind. What are you going to do for us as your huge primary voting base and your constituency? And Joe Biden says to him, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. What? Is that where that came from? (laughs) What? (laughs) That's where that came from. Yeah. He literally like dodged the entire discussion that Charlemagne was having about like, hey, we're a voting block. Could you please like (laughs) pretend to give a shit or like pretend to have some kind of agenda for our specific interest group? And he straight up. Yeah, he straight up completely dismisses Charlemagne. I mean, that's actually worse than Hillary. She said that her platform was putting hot sauce on pizza or something like that. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Hot sauce in her bag. She stole that. She lifted that right from Beyonce's lyrics. Like, yes. Yeah. so unelectable. Not even Beyonce could get Hillary elected, though. Even Beyonce's likability. Bernie got a large po- uh, population of, like, the middle class and um, the the working class vote. I love Bernie. I'm a Bernie stan. Ugh, okay. Bernie simp here. <laughs> Bernie's a communist, but we're, we're not going to go there. Bernie got most of the black vote under 35. He got a huge cohort of millennial black votes. So Beyonce being a millennial black artist, I feel like that was uh, Hillary's Hail Mary to try and appeal to millennial black people to vote for her. <laughs> the beehive. She wanted to weaponize a beehive. She did. And it didn't work, right? Because everyone's like, once again, we're tired of all these establishment politicians patronizing the black community, yeah. talking about hot sauce and how much they love fried chicken and doing like the stanky leg in a press conference and never having any, <laughs> like, pr- not having any actual policies to put forth to materially improve the lives of black uh, electorate. And and this is not to insult boomers or whatever, but I know that like for especially for older black people, their struggle was different, right? So these kinds of things are a little bit more um they found them a little bit more familiar and they were kind of happy with even maybe even being acknowledged by these politicians. But now a lot of younger black voters are like that is not even close to being enough, right? We are a significant voting block. We matter. You need to actually come forth with some real policy that's going to help us in the same way you, you would do with other interest groups. I, I think you actually touch on something really interesting where you said um, they did the stanky leg and all of that, where they're pretty much tokenizing black culture and being like, hey, you know what the blacks love? <laughs> like dances, right? Yeah. What, what's that's so offensive. Honestly. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but like, but it's a group of white people 
marketing essentially to black people and just be like, okay. And that's all politics really is, is marketing them to get a vote. We are a metric to them. And once they get in office, the goal is just to get them to the poll and that's it. And when they realize, hey, if you tell these people words they want to hear, they'll vote for you. You don't actually have to do anything. And then you just remind them, hey, your mommy and your daddy voted for me. So I feel like peak black pandering politics was Bill Clinton playing the saxophone in the Arsenio Hall show. He was like the cool white candidate. And then the low point, I feel like when it jumped the shark was when Mitt Romney was doing the who let the dogs out. Oh my God. Dance during his, like, <laughs> uh, his run up against Obama. I feel like that's actually when it jumped the shark. And so all of the politicians trying to do it after that moment, it's been just ridiculously cringe to anybody under 35. What what you have, um, so the Glenn Youngkin race, Glenn Youngkin was a gubernatorial governor's candidate in Virginia who won, and he was a Republican candidate. And interestingly enough, his counterpart, Terry McAuliffe, didn't make it a point to meet with any of the coalitions in his area. So he didn't uh, meet with the massive immigrant community in Virginia. He didn't meet with um, the Black Caucus in Virginia. He didn't meet with anybody. He just assumed, yeah, they're going to vote for me, of course. Whereas Glenn Youngkin made it a point to talk to them, listen to their stories, and ask them, what do they need? And even then, Glenn Youngkin barely won as a Republican. So I get the same dynamic as this vibe where, you know, like when you're in a relationship with like a low-value man and he thinks he's great because at least he doesn't beat you, (laughs) you know? Like, I'm getting that vibe where they're like, we Democrats don't have to do anything. We can just do the bare minimum and just coast because the Republicans are their bad, evil, lynching, racist kind of thing. And so they get to feel like the good guys in comparison without having to do any actual work. But they even do that to other Democratic candidates because that's how AOC won her race, right? Because like the original guy that was in there was like some kind of phoning it in white guy who didn't understand the consistency in which he got elected. And he didn't even bother to do most of the campaigning he needs to do in her electorate. And she won. So queen, (laughs) even on the same side, you kind of see that overall dismissiveness come from white establishment politicians towards uh, communities of color, even if they actually need their vote. And it's a tiny little district like the one that AOC came from. I mean, even if you disagree with her politically, you got to admit, like you got to admire the hustle, right? Like the, the fact that she got elected against all odds, the fact that she was so young, I'm like, honestly, queen. I am proud of what AOC accomplished. Very, very proud. I don't like her, <laughs> but I do respect her. <laughs> Yeah, I don't agree with a lot of her, like, black birthing body pandering shit. Like, I don't like that. Like, she won't refer to women as women. That pisses me off. But, uh, I mean, I'm a democratic socialist, so I got to stand my fellow democratic socialist. But, (laughs) I just think she has bad political instincts. That's the problem with winning an election really, really young, is that you don't have time to develop your political instincts, and then you have to do it in the public eye. So, I do kind of wonder... By the time she reaches 35 and she's eligible to become president, if she actually tries to launch a presidential campaign, if any of these like rookie mistakes will come back to bite her because she's been in the public eye for so long. Yeah, that's one of the challenges of becoming a politician in the social media age. We had a conservative prime minister called Stephen Harper, and we all used to joke about how boring and vanilla he is. And someone said, like, if Stephen Harper had Facebook when he was a teenager, like, would there be embarrassing, you know, Facebook status posts that we could, like, you know, use against him? That's that's a whole other question. But yeah, like, the mistakes that establishment politicians made when they were younger are not as documented, I guess. And it didn't destroy Joe Biden's candidacy. And he straight up lied and plagiarized 
He plagiarized an entire speech and then completely lied about his academic background from top to bottom. And they had the video footage. And then the Democratic Party was like, oh, it's from the 70s. So then it got really dismissive. So I think the other option is just stay in politics long enough for your uh, mistakes to be so far behind you that people will say it's not part of your character now. And also like the the fact that we're actively ignoring him being the anti-bus desegregation bill. And he was like, it's to keep our kids safe. Like Joe Biden, when he was a senator, he actively opposed the um, desegregation of bus routes. So it's like, this guy's our president and now... Yeah, and the crime bill. And I mean, there's there's so many different ways in which, again, well, he's just a dinosaur. He's just a dinosaur in politics who should have never been president. But that's a whole other discussion. We need to raise the fucking bar. Okay, the bar is in hell for Democratic politicians, just like it is for men. Raise the bar. It bothers me. And that, and that's why I'm not a Democrat, though. Like, I think the Democrats are finally showing their asses, and I really appreciate that. We need to call them out and realize this upper crust needs to be honest about who they really are. And it's just a bunch of old white dudes with money throwing money at, like, people that they feel like, oh, my God, I want to feel better about myself. Let me throw money at the trans problem or at the immigrant immigration problem one way or the other. So I will say like white liberal racism. And I say this as a white liberal, but I'm so sorry. Like white liberals can be so fucking cringe. Like (laughs) I'm I'm really, I'm really sorry on behalf of all of my people. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Joking. That's the most Canadian thing ever. I'm really sorry, but (laughs) yeah, no, the, the, the weird thing about in progressive spaces is like, the thing that upsets them is not actual racism. What upsets them is being labeled racist. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're really like dancing on eggshells, like trying to say the right thing or not say the wrong thing, but it's not because they actually want to do the right thing or help, you know, people who are oppressed. It's just because they don't want to, it's like for social clout. Like they just don't want to be seen as a racist. That to me was so clear after this summer that we just had with all of the protests and or riots that occurred because of the killing of George Floyd. All of these companies, all of these politicians, they're doing the black square. They're talking about how black lives matter. And at the same time, they're posting these squares and giving all this lip service about diversity inclusion they're they're not recruiting their workforce from HBCUs. They're not uh, paying attention to the ethicists who are talking about how some of the algorithms that they're developing for various types of technology can be extremely racially discriminatory. So a lot of the left really loves their performative anti-racism actions. But when it comes to making money, any type of actual political will, any type of policy change, it absolutely fizzles out. I mean, I'm, I'm actually struggling to even understand what the tangible benefit, like what tangible benefit happened for even the community, not even black people as a whole, but the, even the specific communities where these tragedies happened that benefited them. All, all most of us saw happen was the media descends and all of descends down on all of these places where all of the protests and riots are going on. The media, uh, starts interviewing all of these random grifters who don't even belong in the community. Those grifters managed to organize enough to pull donations in and then disappear, right? Or bought themselves a multi-million dollar house. There's an element of like, we're just going to throw money at this problem. And what they're doing is they're just giving money to grifters. They're not actually in any way involved in uh, creating policies. And even within the companies that, that exist and the parties that exist, they're not putting that much in place to correct the problem of 
institutional racism or systemic racism in a way that would meaning meaningfully empower black people. I struggle with the word systemic racism because I think that takes a lot of the social responsibility that we can take for ourselves and puts it onto the system. So I struggle with it just based on semantics. But that's a lot of black conservatives and that there's the discussion about the merit of that. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And that's why I'm not like saying binary, like a binary answer of like there, it, it exists or it doesn't exist, but it that that's that's another conversation right but for instance you have like the pro-life um pro-choice issue where both sides tokenize young black women that are forced to make this painful decision of whether or not to have a baby right and you can tell these people have never been faced with the idea of like going against your own biology to get rid of a pregnancy that's not an easy decision nobody just goes oh my god i skipped my pill let me just on over planned parenthood like it's kind of a horrible, horrible thing to go through if you know anybody that's had an abortion. And so one side is saying, oh my God, they're killing black babies and destroying black families and the leftists want this for you and whatever, whatever the right is perpetuating. And then on the left, you have, oh my God, they want to make single moms out of everybody and keep women poor and out of the workforce. It's like, okay, what are either of you doing to make sure that abortion is not an a remote option in our society. This horrible medical procedure should not be a social issue. I, I will say I am pro-choice. However, I am sympathetic to the argument that abortion or high rates of abortion are a sign of uh, the failure of society, right? When women have the option of having abortion, it's very often like, oh, I can't afford to raise a child. Well, how can we create a society where Women are not put in a position where they have to make that choice, where they can have that child. If they want to have a child, they can have it without having to worry that their child will starve to death. It's really rich to me watching Republicans try to rebrand as a champion of Black mothers because... Yeah. (laughs) Didn't didn't they spend pretty much decades demonizing Black mothers specifically as welfare queens? It just, it feels very disingenuous to just about everybody (laughs) to see the sudden concern. Yeah, it's weird as fuck to me that, like, people on the right will be like, oh, you're... The left, they virtue signal, they do this and that. The conservatives do their own type of virtue signaling, right? Like M- Matt Walsh being like anti-abortion because it, you know, oh my gosh, it k- disproportionately kills like black and brown babies kind of thing. I'm like, stop pretending like you care about racism, okay? Like, stop using woke ideology for conservative purposes. It, to, to me, it, to me, I would summarize that as like Republicans care about life until, and, and I'm I'm a weird like pro-choice, but I'm, I'm more focused on the societal indicators that lead to that situation in the first place rather than the choice in and of itself. But was it Republicans care about babies until they're out of the womb and then Democrats do their best to make sure he winds up in jail kind of deal? So there was a really interesting uh, YouTube video that was published by the New York Times that was discussing uh, how liberal hypocrisy is fueling inequality. And it was talking about how in blue states, in like very, very blue states where both the statewide and the local electorate and politicians overwhelmingly favor Democrats, that you would think that all of these policies and progressive policies that Democrats say they're for would be enacted. And they're not. Specifically, they highlighted Chicago and parts of Illinois where public school funding is still tied to property taxes. And there's all these different types of um, barriers to getting adequate funding and education to historically black areas. And they basically these, these historically black areas have to beg every year for the entire county to get like throw pennies their way so they can afford for their, for their classrooms to not literally look like prisons that are slowly routing from the inside out. And it's not, it's not even anywhere near an exaggeration. 
So this is a completely solidly blue county, and yet the Democrats have done nothing all of this time to fix the educational disparities between the richest areas of the county and the poorest areas of the county. So while they say, therefore, things like education equality, school choice, when they're given the opportunity to vote for these things, when they have the power, it's just never the first thing on the docket. And quite frankly, a lot of that institutional racism seems to be perpetuated by Democrats and they like it. So they talk equality, but they vote otherwise. Yeah. It's it's all like show and dance. It's like I said, they tokenize it because they know if they pay lip service and make people feel good. So I guess in a way they've got that figured out, whereas Republicans don't even know how to make black people feel good. The Democrats <laughs> at least know what to say to make them. So Democrats are the ultimate scrotes in that sense, whereas like the ultimate smooth talker. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. That douchebag that'll, you know, whereas like the Republican is like the neckbeard that just lo- like the incel. He's the incel. The Republicans are just the insults. <laughs> oh my god! And, and and that's why I really do hate partisan politics because now you have on the left you have not in my backyard politics. And just to explain what that is, it's you're for everything. Where it's like I want more homeless shelters so people are not sleeping on the street and these like feel good policies. But when it comes to enacting those feel good policies and it hits them right in their neighborhood where their kids go to school, where they live in their miniature blue suburbia, they're like, well, wait, no, I don't want a homeless shelter here. Like, no, put it over there. Like, just not in my backyard. I want it to exist. I just don't want to pay for it. Yeah. It gives Republicans so much like valid ammunition as well, because they constantly talk about the crime rates in Chicago. They constantly talk about the homelessness problem in California. And a lot of the the reason why these things exist is because of historical institutional racism that was never corrected in these blue states, right? Chicago, like the way that it was planned, like literally the planning of the city of Chicago was to keep the undesirables on one side of town cut off from reasonable access to resources. When they start talking about the murder rate, they start talking about like food deserts and all of the ways that structural racism exists and disproportionately affects black people. The Republicans are right and they have a lot of the ammunition to point to these areas and be like, hey, you guys keep voting Democrat and they haven't done shit for you in the last 50 years, right? Or nothing of substantial good that actually makes your community safer, that makes your education better. And yet they keep getting your vote over and over and over again. And then you'll see some black people who agree with that. And you're seeing more and maybe a larger cohort of black Republicans who are being more vocal about stuff like that. Because if you did kind of come out of these communities where it's pretty obvious that despite the way that everyone votes and says they're, you know, they're pro Democrat, but the same problems exist, even, even Rahm Emanuel being like the, the mayor of Chicago at one point, and he was literally Obama's chief of staff. And still these problems happen in these communities year after year. They have no real interest in tackling and fixing these issues. And they're just counting on the fact that Black people keep rubber stamping them into office with no type of tangible improvement on the way that they're actually existing. And, and, and Rahm Emanuel also did like the finger wagging. The, um, there was like a really bad murder wave in Chicago a couple of years ago when he was still in office. And um, he basically was like, well, who raised these people? And I'm like, are you really doing like the, <laughs> the moralistic stance about gang violence? These communities are suffering, right? There's literally toddlers being shot in the head and you can't get your policing together. 
you can't get the policing together to protect these communities and you can't get the policing together to contain the gang violence. And it just exploded all over the city and became a really big problem. So there's just, there's so many factors by which the Democrats can routinely fail the people that they purport to be champions for, and yet still like want to keep patting themselves on the back and tooting their own horn as being like the progressive party. I've mentioned this in the discord before, Ro, a lot of like modern, you know, white liberal, like paternalism, I guess is probably the best way to describe it. Reminds me a lot of how historically one of the ways that rich people occupied themselves was through charity, rich noble women, you know, you can't, go out and actually like lead an army and do shit. So instead you stay at home and like, you know, send some bread to the church or something like that. You, you know, do charity for the poor, you know, do charity for the poor and then everyone will see what a gracious and wonderful lady I am. Like that kind of stuff. Right. But at the same time, like, um, these same wealthy noble people would not implement any kind of policy that would actually prevent the poor from suffering. Right. Like, they wouldn't actually, like, liberate the serfs because then they don't have any, like... (laughs) Or, like, liberating the serfs, for example, would be too much work, um, for example, in Russia. So they kept them as serfs. Basically, like, the ultra-wealthy, they want to look good by doing charity, but they don't want to do the hard work of putting in policies that will prevent people from being poor and suffering to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to, like... They don't want to get rid of the problems that they, like exist to solve yeah because they benefit from the problem existing like they get to look good when they donate when they set up you know hospitals when they do this and that they get to look good so they almost like need those people to stay on the bottom rungs of society so that they can continue to look good right if they if they actually elevated the working class and the working class was able to defend themselves or protect themselves take care of themselves and so on the ultra wealthy wouldn't be they wouldn't get to look good from doing charity for them right so, like, that actually happens on a global scale, too, where you find, um, and, and this is going to sound slightly conspiratorial, but um, there's indications that a lot of um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, have actually impeded a few efforts to actually lift certain communities in developing countries because now they would have to go back and, like, they can't live off of those, like, millions of dollars in donations that helps them exist and build orphanages in these poor countries because you don't need orphanages anymore. Like the parents aren't dying from famines. Right. And so this is happening on micro and macro scales, like people not insidiously avoiding solving the problem because the problem justifies their existence. That's actually not even a conspiracy. That's just a thing that's happening. We've noticed this with uh, an L Kami here. She talked about this in our coercive control episode on FDS about how the domestic violence industrial complex almost is not invested in actually preventing abuse against women. The whole industry basically exists, you know, lawyers, family law, you know, doctors who, and like psychologists and so on who evaluate kids, the whole industry basically exists to perpetuate violence against women because they benefit from, there's more money to be made from slapping a Band-Aid on it than curing the problem to begin with. So are you saying nonprofits are the problem? I do think that nonprofits can exacerbate problems in some cases, yeah. Here's my thought about what happens with nonprofits is if you work in a nonprofit, you're just not going to make that much money and you're not going to get paid more no matter how much or how little you work. 
So I think what ends up happening is it leans itself to just sort of passivity about the problem and or the people who would have the power to change things are the people who have enough wealth and influence. And those people are inspired to keep their wealth and influence <laughs> and and don't want to actually go and invest anything in uh, structurally changing. They don't want a working class revolution. OK, OK, <laughs> that, would be, that would destabilize society. OK, Marks. Um, <laughs> uh, let's not create a social black hole. Daddy Marks would be so proud of me right now. <laughs> oh, uh, I feel I'm going to shower after this. <laughs> Like tying this back to like race and politics, um, it, it does, it is something that I am being really vulnerable when I say that I, I don't feel like I belong in any of the parties. Me neither. I think that's honestly, all of us right now. <laughs> We're politically homeless. Yeah, <laughs> we are. And it, it was a Reddit commenter that said that said that too. She's like, I feel politically politically homeless. And join the club, queen. <laughs> You know, and, and that's why I actually recommend, you know, if you live in a free and fair democratic republic um, representative society, run, just just run and raise money and have that grassroots effort and don't drink the Kool-Aid. Oh, so you mean like run for office, not like run away? No, no, don't run away. Don't <laughs> run for- <laughs> empower yourself. Yeah, yeah. Run away from your problems. <laughs> this might be, this is sort of related, but the biggest, the biggest barrier is honestly the establishment, right? The political establishment for these new candidates that are coming um, from the real progressive left, right? They have no qualms about cutting off anybody who works with anyone who would unseat an existing establishment Democrat. They, you know, have been really open about like all the taxes they've been using to thwart the American electoral process to keep the people they feel should be in power in power. And they engage in a ton of tokenism, like Joe Biden's pre-decision that he was going to select a black vice president, a black female vice president, which basically gave him two candidates, which is Kamala Harris and <laughs> uh, Stacey Abrams. Yeah. So the problem with that is like they'll just put someone who's a token black person who also is not interested in making any type of change right and that's that's kind of the problem is that they'll quell the any type of dissent when you feel like you're not talking enough about our specific consistency issues by engaging in tokenism pulling a person from that community as long as they toe the existing party line right and i have an observation about a lot of these types of politicians and Kamala Harris is an example of this. And I also think Hillary Clinton where the traits that it takes for these type of women to get visible enough to be considered by the establishment is they, they kind of have to be a little two faced. They kind of have to be like kind of brown nosers and ass kissers and they have to benefit the establishment. That's how they get picked. Right. And then the problem is the electorate doesn't like them because they can see that, that they're disingenuous. They look and sound like corporate suits. They're not one of us, right? And I think female politicians get penalized for that the most. The most successful politicians, people like Bill Clinton, who forever was like one of... And actually, uh, Barack Obama, too. They were just considered like these great orators of the ability to connect with the common man. They both have the elitist credentials because they went to Ivy League schools. They're highly educated, but they could talk to... They, they had a genuineness to them, or at least a plausible genuineness to them. Mm, Likeability. Yeah. And we're relatable to people, a likability, a relatability, the ability to like shoot the shit and talk to people on a real level. 
I feel like female politicians have it harder because the kinds of female politicians they let through are these like, <laughs> pick me, sorry, pick me types. <laughs> no, be real. hundred percent. They are political pick me's. Pack Misha's. <laughs> pack Misha's. Ah, yeah. new word. I'm calling him Pack Misha's. <laughs> yes. Uh, the word pick me is starting to get overused and used in, in ways that it's not meant to be. A pick me is someone who throws women under the bus for the benefit of men or to get male attention or male approval. But both Kamala and Hillary have done that, right? Like, yeah. and, and black voters. Hillary Clinton did that very same textbook, pick me, pack Misha move on, um, the candidate presidential hopeful Tulsi Gabbard. So exactly. That's what I mean. Like they are literally by definition are yeah. pick me. very clear. Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that. Like that was very contentious, but yeah. And then the same thing when Kamala Harris suddenly didn't have anything to say to the black constituency, even though she's supposed to represent the black constituency. So you put someone in office who's not even actually fully black. She's biracial for the record. Yeah. So you put her in there and she straight up has nothing to say except for I went to an HBCU. So I'm black. And, and a lot of people who voted, who, uh, who looked at her record in California were very unhappy with some of the truancy laws that she passed some of her policies on weed, which disproportionately affected the black community, et cetera, et cetera. So there was all these like ways in which she did not appear to be a champion of either women or black people. And yet they put her in charge to be a champion of women and black people, but it's only because she, is basically a pick me, right? And this is what the Democratic Party does to keep power, placate, so to speak, the interest groups that they think they have to appeal to without, while doing absolutely nothing. I will say, though, that it's important to point out that uh, true progressives or true radicals very seldom make it into the upper echelons of power because the existing like power structure, what, you know, however you want to describe it, if they're adding people to their ranks, they only want to choose people who will be beneficial to them, who will add to their power. They don't want to accept people into their ranks who they feel will destabilize or challenge their power. I think that's, uh, for example, why the DNC was so hostile to Bernie Sanders. And, you know, even though he was immensely popular with people, way more so than than Hillary, I think that's why they didn't allow him to be the candidate, was just because he was seen as too threatening to the establishment. 100%. Yeah, the bureaucracy exists to perpetuate itself. Like, power is self-perpetuating, by definition. Yeah. And, you know, why Why would it want to topple itself from the inside out? Like, just because people like Bernie, is Bernie good for the party as well? It has to be mutually beneficial. Um, and no, it wasn't going to be mutually beneficial. <laughs> well, we did figure out it can be done without that. That's what happened with Donald Trump. He basically shit all over the Republican establishment. So... Yeah, yeah. He got the votes. Somehow, we got to rec... We got to recreate that on the left. Yeah. <laughs> that is terrifying. That is that is legitimately terrifying. We need to get a more aggressive, like, left. Hopefully yeah. more competent, but yeah. <laughs> so here, here's the thing, though. I do want to say, um, so I feel like this whole idea that Black people, some Black people are more interested in the Republican Party now. I feel like it's almost like doing, like, mate guarding on the Democratic Party. It's like, oh, you're not going to, like, <laughs> add value to my life? I'm just going to go somewhere else kind of thing, right? Like, we need to raise the bar for politicians so that they don't, they, like, they need to know that that we can't rely. That's, that's Candace Owens' whole shtick, right? Like, get off the Democratic plantation. And I, could, I, I couldn't agree with her more because, you know, 
leftists and the Democrats run, and I, and I say this separately because not all Democrats are leftists, they run on feel-good politics. At least the right is doing something. They're passing policy. Even if I don't agree with what they're doing, they're at least doing something. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're doing something. I, I shouldn't say agree. Like, I don't find it as effective per se. And they also lack in the charisma department that I think the left has kind of capitalized well on. I'm a conservative because I actually have very conservative values. I don't think they speak to me very well. They don't market to me very well. And they could probably do that better. And the left, I guess I'm okay with their failures. Like, fail on, friends. <laughs> like it's all talk, no actions, but... I'm just tired of failure in general. Our nation shouldn't be failing, yeah. I will vote for a competence. Well, I don't want a competent yeah. sociopath, so let me take that back. But just like general competence or ability or desire to do something, I think everybody politically is just begging for it. And so everyone's just taking a chance on all of these like left field candidates. Right. And as long as they are like halfway intelligent yeah. and they don't like, um, you know, they don't do anything that's like super cringe. They yeah, can yeah. probably get elected. And, and, and I say that because I was also a little Elizabeth Warren fan and she was a person who I thought, okay, she's got the passion she's got the drive. She's got the intelligence. She's got the educational background. And then she did so many things that were so cringe and she just showed that she had terrible political instincts that if she didn't win. And I was like, that's a shame because I actually think as an effective, as a person who I think would enact policies that would benefit people who seem po like passionate about it, I trust Elizabeth Warren vastly more than I trusted Hillary Clinton, but there was just no way for her to win in that current environment. Like I was an Elizabeth Warren stand for her policies and then she pretended to be Native American and I was like, girl, <laughs> why? Oh my God. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the fake woke thing. So Elizabeth Warren, I actually was fond of her and her banking regulation you know, things. And like now she, now she's back on it. And then for one, like she went on the whole like social issue train. And I don't know what this like magnetic attraction is to social issues that one are really, really big and are made up of a bunch of like failed policies that everybody's just refusing to address. You know, like it's just playing whack-a-mole with feelings essentially. I think people just like to feel acknowledged. So I think a mm -hmm. lot of that pandering is for the communities who feel that no one's acknowledging them. <sighs> Fine. You know, <laughs> but then when you pander without any action, that just makes people feel like they've been lied to. It just makes people feel like they've been let down or manipulated. Yeah, that's true. They feel betrayed. Yeah. We just have like political amnesia too on the reg. Like every four years we remember. <laughs> <laughs> Every four years. Yeah. Because every, because really, I mean, every other election in your life is going to be for your own, yeah. like, local, yeah. county, state, whatever. So I think when it comes to national elections, everyone just gets so excited. But then there's some people that only pay attention to national politics and don't realize how much their life sucks because of local politics. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's a good, like, I mean, if you guys have anything else, I was thinking, like, moving on to the strategy, because I think you just nailed. I, I actually would support a more competent Republican Party for the sake of creating more competition for Democrats. It's again, it's like the low value male being like, well, at least I don't beat you kind of thing, right? If you get rid of abusers and they have, they don't have the option of being like, oh, at least there's someone worse than me kind of thing, right? If you raise the bar for the worst person or get rid of them altogether, um, then, you know, it creates the situation where they have to actually be good. Like <laughs> raise the bar, like the, the floor, instead of raising the ceiling, you raise the floor, right? Like, all right. So what's our strategic takeaways from this episode? I mean, I would advise people against blind party loyalty and to think critically about 
not just what are politicians saying to you, but what are the actual policies that they're pushing forward? And is it going to materially benefit the people that they claim to help? Uh, Ro, you said this, I'm going to steal this from you because I'm a academic plagiarist in that sense, but local elections matter in the U.S. Significantly so. Find out who your county executive is. You know how much power that person has over you? The shutdown? Guess who was enforcing it? It was your county executive. It wasn't Trump. Um, yeah, vote, vote, read up on your local party, your state legislators, uh, your mayor, your city council, all of them. They are the ones making decisions that impact your sidewalk, your neighborhood. So. That's very true. And that's true in Canada, too. Like everything happens on the provincial level or municipal level, like federally, not that much happens. But yeah, more people need to get involved in local politics for sure. Uh, my takeaway is that all of the parties are going to have to learn that tokenism is no longer going to be enough. That as millennials grow older and as Gen Z becomes a voting bloc, we are very connected. We're very global. We're used to having friends, even friends directly, or being connected with the people who are different from us. So just seeing a person who's uh, a historically discriminated against minority in a position of power who has no type of either power to actually do something or no desire to help said constituency is not going to be enough. So we're starting to expect them to put forth tangibles. I think all of us need to start holding our politicians to the fire on both sides to make sure that when they are enacting policies and trying to put forth ideas and as they're using black and brown faces for uh, their campaign purposes, that they're actually putting policy behind it. So my two cents. Um, thanks for listening, Team Female. Check out our Twitter at Female Political and our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Female Political Strategy. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.